0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Come back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 193 and it's the fourth in a mini-series wander which covers the Secret Service as we try to answer the Secret Service question. And the question is a simple one. Was the Secret Service or any elements of the Secret Service involved in a conspiracy to cover up the crime or even perhaps to perpetrate it? The one thing that we know in any organization, good organization, is that there are good people and there are bad. If an organization gets to any size or scale, that's almost inevitably true. Whether the bad ones have any undue influence over the course of the organization itself or the course of the conduct of themselves and others within the organization, so much so That it could lead to catastrophic failure of the mission of the organization itself. Well, that doesn't happen very often. But it can happen. Asking these kind of questions some 60 years ago must have been an incredibly tough thing to do. It's an incredibly tough thing to do right now, some 60 years later. In fairness to presenting all of this information, we always have to go back to the written record to understand what was officially entered into testimony and to what is there in the official record before we begin to investigate further. That really is only the fair thing to do. In the last couple of episodes, well, we've done just that. We've begun to wade into what the official record says about the Secret Service involvement as it is depicted in the Warren Commission report. We've got one more episode like that today. Where we cover certain information in Chapter 2 of the Warren Commission Report and the remainder of the information that we plan on covering in Chapter 8. From there, we'll pivot into some of the more investigative detail that folks like Vince Palomara have uncovered, some of which we gave you an idea of in the first episode on this mini series Wander, and those will come in subsequent episodes after today. So, in today's episode, We'll cover, again, as I said, a little bit of information from Chapter 2 on the advanced preparations for the Dallas trip that were made by Agent Winston G. Lawson, a member of the White House detail, who acted as the advance agent on the trip, and Forrest V. Sorrells, special agent in charge of the Dallas office. In addition, from Chapter 8, we'll spend time on other protective measures and aspects of the Secret Service performance. You know, it seems like these days, everybody listening to a podcast really enjoys true crime. It's one of the most popular categories in the podcast arena. Yes, the JFK assassination does fit that. And so it's understandable that many people who like true crime and that kind of mystery would like a show like JFK, The Enduring Secret. And that's okay because that's one of the reasons I like it too. But the real reason that we are doing this episode and the real reason that we're doing this entire podcast has nothing to do with true crime drama or mystery. It has everything to do with this beautiful country that we live in and what happened in 1963 to taint some of the principles and the ideas that we all grew up with. It's up to us to seek the truth. It's up to us to be courageous enough to continue to ask those questions long after the president's death. because. Getting the answers to those questions, even just academically seeking them, is a way of keeping democracy in this country alive. Indeed, it's a way to keep democracy around the world alive. We take a lot for granted. The ability to speak freely, the ability to reason in public, the ability to be a beacon for others, the ability to freely influence others in our thinking. That's what a free society is. And it gets messy. And in fact, if you examine the history of this country, well, it's always been messy. It's never been always straightforward. But the thing about it is that we always keep seeking the truth. Let's not lose our way on this fundamental aspect of our existence. The rest of what happens is like making sausage. But as my Italian grandmother used to say, once the sausage is made, manja, manja. As we watch what has happened this week in Israel and all of the senseless killing that was initiated to begin with in that country, and now, of course, comes the inevitable retaliation by the Israelis, there is an incredible loss of human life. There are terrorists in the middle of all of this. There are barbarians in the middle of all of this. I heard a story last night that a one-year-old child was beheaded. I can't even imagine. And this is from a person who has lost a son. I can't even imagine. Yes, there is evil in this world, and it lurks all over. It's hard for most of us to detect, and I have said that before because for the most part, There is an abundance of goodness, but the abundance of goodness does not preclude the existence of evil. So becoming a trained eye and understanding that it does exist, your mind will not be blind, and so therefore your eye can see. And I am a firm believer that you have to stand up to evil, even though the consequences in some cases can be dire. Life as we know it can be fragile. And it's fragile right now for all of the peoples of that portion of the Middle East. Every human life is valuable. It does not matter the color of your skin, your tribe, your ethnic origins. But as Martin Luther King would say, let's evaluate you on the content of your character. Each of you out there listening to this podcast, please do your part in spreading good. Do your part in standing up to evil in the little enclave that you call your own. I don't often make political comments on this show, and I'm not making one now. I'm making a humanitarian one. We've progressed in this world historically with ebbs and flows, violent movements forward, and just as violent a set of movements backwards at times. But in the end, we've had a net gain. Our world does not need another Middle Ages. We don't need to step back into oblivion. We need to hold on to the gains of so many generations, some of them just so recently in our history. And that means being kind to one another, but also standing up to evil. I want each of you to be safe, but I also want each of you to be courageous. And I want each of you to remember these words when you're listening to this podcast because it's not just about what went on in Dallas. The 60th anniversary of the assassination is coming up and I know that I have mentioned before that I would be in Dallas. Well, my plans have changed. I'll be in Pittsburgh this year at the conference held by Dr. Wecht and his associates. As we approach 60 and we understand that the sun is beginning to set, we should all have a renewed diligence to spread the word about this topic. You know, occasionally, there is some pretty gruesome stuff that gets talked about on this podcast. Every time I publish an episode, I have to check the box that says, Is there explicit detail? I've done that for each and every one of the episodes that we have published. The topic itself is, by its nature, gruesome. But I've heard from so many of you, and I've heard from so many of you that you've included your children, and it's been a way to connect the dots on a very important historical matter that we've continued to grapple with in this country. To hear that father and daughter, to hear that father and son are being connected and united in this discussion, and sometimes at pretty young ages, is a very gratifying thing to hear when it comes to motivating me to continue to produce this podcast. Our younger listeners may not know what all of this means, but you'd be surprised. This summer, I had a freshman college student, home from school, who helped me out in the yard for a couple of days. He was incredibly interested in the topic, and I ended up not doing much work with him, which was the original intention, but spending a lot of time answering his questions. And for someone who had just casually listened to a few of my episodes and casually read about the JFK assassination, he was incredibly informed, and the questions were incredibly well-formed. Just because you're young doesn't mean you don't have an interest in this topic. Well, that was a pretty long wander, and I'll stop there because we've got business to cover in today's episode. So, without further ado, let's listen to the rest of episode 193 of JFK. The Enduring Secret. Advance preparations for President Kennedy's visit to Dallas were primarily the responsibility of two Secret Service agents. Special Agent Winston G. Lawson, a member of the White House Detail, who acted as the advance agent, and Forrest V. Sorles, special agent in charge of the Dallas office. Both agents were advised of the trip on November 4th. Lawson received a tentative schedule of the Texas trip On November 8th, from Roy H. Kellerman, Assistant Special Agent in Charge of the White House Detail, who was the Secret Service official responsible for the entire Texas journey. As advance agent working closely with Sorrells, Lawson had responsibility for arranging the timetable for the President's visit to Dallas and coordinating local activities with the White House staff, the organizations directly concerned with the visit, and local law enforcement officials. Lawson's most important responsibilities were to take preventative action against anyone in Dallas considered a threat to the President, to select the luncheon site and motorcade route, and, finally, to plan security measures for the luncheon and the motorcade. The Protective Research Section of the Secret Service maintains records of people who have threatened the president or so conducted themselves to be deemed a potential danger to him. On November 8, 1963, after undertaking the responsibility for advanced preparations for the visit to Dallas, Agent Lawson went to the PRS offices in Washington. A check of the geographic indexes there revealed no listing for any individual deemed to be a potential danger to the President in the territory of the Secret Service Regional Office, which includes Dallas and Fort Worth. To supplement the PRS files, the Secret Service depends largely on local police departments and local offices of other federal agencies, which advise it of potential threats immediately before the visit of the President to their community. Upon his arrival in Dallas on November 12th, Lawson conferred with the local police and the local office of the Federal Bureau of Investigation about potential dangers to the president. Although there was no mention in PRS files of the demonstration in Dallas against Ambassador Adlai Stevenson on October 24th, 1963, Lawson inquired about the incident and obtained through the local police, photographs of some of the persons involved. On November 22nd, a Secret Service agent stood at the entrance to the trademark where the president was scheduled to speak with copies of these photographs. Dallas detectives in the lobby of the trademark and in the luncheon area also had copies of these photographs. A number of people who resembled some of those in the photographs placed under surveillance at the trademark. The FBI office in Dallas gave the local Secret Service representatives the name of a possibly dangerous individual in the Dallas area who was investigated. It also advised the Secret Service of the circulation on November 21st of a handbill sharply critical of President Kennedy. Shortly before the Dallas police had reported to the Dallas Secret Service that the handbill had appeared on the streets of Dallas. Neither the Dallas police nor the FBI had yet learned the source of the handbill. No one else was identified to the Secret Service through local inquiry as potentially dangerous, nor did PRS develop any additional information between November 12th when Lawson left Washington on November 22nd. Now let's turn to the luncheon site. An important purpose of the president's visit to Dallas was to speak at a luncheon given by business and civic leaders. The White House staff informed the Secret Service that the president would arrive and depart from Dallas Love Field, that a motorcade through the downtown area of Dallas to the luncheon site should be arranged and that following the luncheon, the president would return to the airport by the most direct route. Accordingly, it was important to determine the luncheon site as quickly as possible so that security could be established at the site and the motorcade route selected. On November 4th, General Bain, agent in charge of the White House detail, asked Sorrells to examine three potential sites for the luncheon. One building, Market Hall, was unavailable for November 22nd. The second, the Women's Building at the State Fairgrounds, was a one-story building with few entrances and easy to make secure, but it lacked necessary food handling facilities and had certain unattractive features, including a low ceiling with exposed conduits and beams. The third possibility, the trademark, was a handsome new building with all the necessary facilities, but it presented security problems. It had numerous entrances, several tiers of balconies surrounding the central court where the luncheon would be held, and several catwalks crossing the court at each level. On November 4th, Sorrels told Bain he believes security difficulties at the trademark could be overcome by special precautions. Lawson also evaluated the security hazards at the trademark on November 13th. Kenneth O'Donnell made the final decision to hold the luncheon at the trademark. Bain so notified Lawson on November 14th. Once the trademark had been selected, Sorrells and Lawson worked out detailed arrangements for security at the building in addition to the preventative measures already maintained they provided for controlling access to the building closing off and policing areas around it securing the roof and ensuring the presence of numerous police officers inside and around the building ultimately more than 200 law enforcement officers mainly dallas police but including eight Secret Service agents, were deployed in and around the trademark. Now let's turn to the motorcade route. On November 8th, when Lawson was briefed on the itinerary for the trip to Dallas, he was told that 45 minutes had been allotted for a motorcade procession from Love Field to the luncheon site. Lawson was not specifically instructed to select the parade route, but he understood that this was one of the functions. Even before the trademark had been definitely selected, Lawson and Sorrels began to consider the best motorcade route from Love Field to the trademark. On November 14th, Lawson and Sorrells, attending a meeting at Love Field and on their return to Dallas, drove over the route, which Sorrels believed was best suited for the motorcade. This route, eventually selected for the motorcade from the airport to the trademark, measured 10 miles, and it could be driven easily with the allotted 45 minutes. From Love Field, the route passed through a portion of suburban Dallas, through the downtown area along Main Street, and then to the trademark via the Stemmons Freeway. For the president's return to Love Field following the luncheon, the agents selected the most direct route, which was approximately four miles. After the selection of the trademark as the luncheon site, Lawson and Sorles met with Dallas Chief of Police Jesse E. Curry and Assistant Chief Charles Batchelor, along with Deputy Chief N.T. Fisher, and several other command officers to discuss details of the motorcade and possible routes, the route was further reviewed by Lawson and Sorrels with Assistant Chief Bachelor and members of the local host committee on November 15th. The police officials agreed that the route recommended by Sorrels was the proper one, and did not express belief that any other route might be better. On November 18th. Sorrels and Lawson drove over the selected route with Batchelor and other police officers, verifying that it could be traversed within 45 minutes. Representatives of the local host committee and the White House staff were advised by the Secret Service of the actual route on the afternoon of November 18th. The route impressed the agents as a natural and desirable one. Sorrels who had participated in presidential protection assignments in Dallas since a visit by President Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1936, testified that the traditional parade route in Dallas was along Main Street, since the tall buildings along the street gave more people an opportunity to participate. The route chosen from the airport to Main Street was the normal one, except where Harwood Street was selected as the means of access to Main Street in preference to a short stretch of the Central Expressway, which presented a minor safety hazard and could not accommodate spectators as conveniently as Harwood Street. According to Lawson, the chosen route seemed to be the best. Agent Lawson would say, It afforded us wide streets most of the way because of the buses that were in the motorcade. It afforded us a chance to have alternative routes if something happened on the motorcade route. It was the type of suburban area, a good part of the way, where the crowds would be able to be controlled for a great distance. And We figured that the largest crowds would be downtown, which they were, and that the wide streets that we would use downtown would be of sufficient width to keep the public out of our way. Elm Street, parallel to Main Street and one block north, was not used for the main portion of the downtown part of the motorcade because Main Street offered better vantage points for spectators. To reach the trademark from Main Street, the agents decided to use the Stemmons Freeway, otherwise known as Route Number 77 it was the most direct route. The only practical way for westbound traffic on Main Street to reach the northbound lanes of the Stemmons Freeway is via Elm Street, which Route Number 77 traffic is instructed to follow in this part of the city. You can see our Commission Exhibits Number 2113, page 34. Elm Street was to be reached from Main by turning right at Houston, going one block north, and then turning left onto Elm. On this last portion of the journey, only five minutes from the trademark, the President's Motorcade would pass the Texas School Book Depository Building on the northwest corner of Houston and Elm Streets. The building overlooks Dealey Plaza, an attractively landscaped triangle of three acres. You can also see it in Commission Exhibit No. 876 on page 33. From Houston Street, which forms the base of the triangle, three streets, Commerce, Main, and Elm, trisect the plaza, converging at the apex of the triangle to form a triple underpath beneath a multiple railroad bridge almost 500 feet from Houston Street. Elm Street The northernmost of the three, after intersecting Houston, curves in a southwesterly arc through the underpass and leads into an access road, which branches off to the right and is used by traffic going to the Stemmons Freeway and the Dallas Fort Worth Turnpike. You can also see this on Commission Exhibit Number 2113 through 2116 on pages 34 to 37. The Elm Street approach to the Stemmons Freeway is necessary in order to avoid the traffic hazards which would otherwise exist if right turns were permitted from Main and Elm into the freeway. To create this traffic pattern, a concrete barrier between Main and Elm streets presents an obstacle to a right turn from Main across Elm to the access road to Stemmins Freeway. And the Dallas Fort Worth Turnpike. This concrete barrier extends far enough beyond the access road to make it impractical for vehicles to turn right from Main directly to the access road. A sign located on the barrier instructs Main Street traffic not to make any turns. See Commission Exhibits Number 2114 through 2116, pages. 35 to 37. In conformity with these arrangements, traffic proceeding west on Main is directed to turn right at Houston in order to reach the Dallas Fort Worth Turnpike, which has the same access road from Elm Street as does the Stemmons Freeway. The planning for the motorcade also included advanced preparations for security arrangements along the route. Sorrels and Lawson reviewed the route in cooperation with Assistant Chief Bachelor and other Dallas police officials who took notes on the requirements for controlling the crowds and traffic, watching the overpasses, and providing motorcycle escort. To control traffic, arrangements were made for the deployment of foot patrolmen and motorcycle police at various positions along the route. Police were assigned to To each overpass on the route and instructed to keep them clear of unauthorized persons. No arrangements were made for police or building custodians to inspect buildings along the motorcade route since the Secret Service did not normally request or make such a check. Under standard procedures, the responsibility for watching the windows of buildings was shared by local police stationed along the route and Secret Service agents riding in the motorcade. As the date for the President's visit approached, the two Dallas newspapers carried several reports of his motorcade route. The selection of the trademark as the possible site for the luncheon first appeared in the Dallas Times-Herald on November 15, 1963. The following day, the newspaper reported that the presidential party And I quote, apparently will loop through the downtown area, probably on Main Street, and route from Dallas Field on its way to the trademark. On November 19th, the Times-Herald afternoon paper detailed the precise route, and this is what they said in the paper. From the airport, the President's party will proceed to Mockingbird Lane, to Lemon, and then to Turtle Creek turning south to Cedar Springs. The motorcade will then pass through downtown on Howard and then west on Main, turning back to Elm at Houston, and then out Stemmons Freeway to the Trademark. Also on November 19th, the Morning News reported that the president's motorcade would travel from Love Field along specified streets. Then, and I quote, Harwood to Maine. Maine to Houston, Houston to Elm, Elm under the triple underpass to Stemmets Freeway, and on to the trademark. On November 20th, a front page story reported that streets on which the presidential motorcade would travel included Maine and Stemmets Freeway. On the morning of the president's arrival, the morning news noted that the motorcade would travel through downtown Dallas onto the Stemmons freeway, and reported that the motorcade will move slowly so the crowds can get a good view of President Kennedy and his wife. Now let's turn to Dallas before the visit. The President's intention to pay a visit to Dallas in the fall of 1963 aroused interest throughout the state The two Dallas newspapers provided their readers with a steady stream of information and speculation about the trip, beginning on September 13th, when the Times-Herald announced in a front-page article that President Kennedy was planning a brief one-day tour of four Texas cities, Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, and Houston. Both Dallas papers cited White House sources on September 26th, is confirming the president's intention to visit Texas on November 21st and the 22nd, with Dallas scheduled as one of the stops. Articles, editorials, and letters to the editor in the Dallas Morning News and the Dallas Times-Herald after September 13th reflected the feeling in the community toward the forthcoming presidential visit. Although there were critical editorials and letters to the editor's The news stories reflected the desire of Dallas officials to welcome the president with dignity and courtesy. An editorial in the Times Herald of september seventeenth called on the people of Dallas to be congenial hosts, even though, and I quote, Dallas didn't vote for mister Kennedy in nineteen sixty and may not endorse him in nineteen sixty four. On october third, the Dallas Morning News quoted U.S. Representative Joe Poole's hope that President Kennedy would receive a good welcome and would not face demonstrations like those encountered by Vice President Johnson during the 1960 campaign. Increased concern about the President's visit was aroused by the incident involving the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Adlai E. Stevenson. On the evening of October 24, 1963, after addressing a meeting in Dallas, Stevenson was jeered, he was jostled, and he was spat upon by hostile demonstrators outside the Dallas Memorial Auditorium. The local, national, and international reaction to this incident evoked from Dallas officials and newspapers strong condemnations of the demonstrators. Mayor Earl Cabell called on the city to redeem itself during President Kennedy's visit. He asserted that Dallas had shed its reputation of the 20s as the southwest hate capital of Dixie. On October 26th, the press reported Chief of Police Curry's plans to call in 100 extra off-duty officers to help protect President Kennedy. Any thought that the president might cancel his visit to Dallas was ended when Governor Connolly confirmed on November 8th that the president would come to Texas on November 21st and 22nd and that he would visit San Antonio, Houston, Fort Worth, Dallas, and Austin. During November, the Dallas papers reported frequently on the plans for protecting the president, stressing the thoroughness of the preparations they conveyed the pleas of Dallas leaders that citizens not demonstrate or create disturbances during the president's visit. On November 18th, the Dallas City Council adopted a new city ordinance prohibiting interference with attendance at lawful assemblies. Two days before the president's arrival, Chief Curry warned that the Dallas police would not permit improper conduct during the president's visit. Meanwhile, on November 17th, the president of the Dallas Chamber of Commerce referred to the city's reputation for being the friendliest town in America and asserted that citizens would, and I quote, greet the president of the United States with the warmth and pride that keep the Dallas spirit famous the world over. Two days later, a local Republican leader called for a, and I quote, civilized, nonpartisan welcome for President Kennedy, stating that, in many respects, Dallas County has isolated itself from the main streets of life in the world in this decade. Another reaction to the impending visit, hostile to the President, came to a head shortly before his arrival, On November 21st, there appeared on the streets of Dallas the anonymous handbill mentioned above. It was fashioned after the, and I quote, wanted circulars issued by law enforcement agencies. Beneath two photographs of President Kennedy, one full face and one profile, appeared the caption, wanted for treason. And it was followed by a scurrilous bill of particulars that constituted a vilification of the president. And on the morning of the president's arrival, there appeared in the morning news a full-page black-bordered advertisement headed, Welcome, Mr. Kennedy, to Dallas. It was sponsored by the American Fact-Finding Committee, which the sponsor later testified was an ad hoc committee, formed, and I quote, strictly for the purpose of having a name to put in the paper. The, and I quote, welcome consisted of a series of statements and questions critical of the president and his administration. In Dallas, the rain had stopped, and by mid-morning, a gloomy overcast sky had given away to the bright sunshine that greeted the presidential party when Air Force One touched down at Love Field at 1140 a.m. Central Standard Time. Governor and Mrs. Conley and Senator Ralph W. Yarborough had come with the President from Fort Worth. Vice President Johnson's airplane, Air Force Two, had arrived at Love Field at approximately 11.35 a.m. And the Vice President and Mrs. Johnson were in the receiving line to greet President and Mrs. Kennedy. After a welcome from the Dallas Reception Committee President and Mrs. Kennedy walked along a chain-link fence at the reception area, greeting a large crowd of spectators that had gathered behind it. Secret Service agents formed a cordon to keep the press and photographers from impeding their passage and scanned the crowd for threatening movements. Dallas police stood at intervals along the fence, and Dallas plainclothesmen mixed in the crowd. Vice President and Mrs. Johnson followed along the fence, guarded by four members of the vice presidential detail. Approximately ten minutes after the arrival at Love Field, the President and Mrs. Kennedy went to the presidential automobile to begin the motorcade. Now let's turn to the organization of the motorcade itself. Secret service arrangements for presidential trips, which were followed in the Dallas motorcade, are designed to provide protection while permitting large numbers of people to see the president. Every effort is made to prevent unscheduled stops, although the president may, and in Dallas did, order stops in order to greet the public. When the motorcade slows or stops, agents take positions between the president and the crowd. The order of vehicles in the Dallas motorcade was as follows. Motorcycles. Dallas Police Motorcycles, preceded the pilot car. Then the pilot car. It was manned by officers of the Dallas Police Department. This automobile preceded the main party by approximately a quarter of a mile. Its function was to alert police along the route that the motorcade was approaching and to check for signs of trouble. Next came four to six motorcycle policemen whose main purpose was to keep the crowd back. After those motorcycles came the lead car. Described as a, and I quote, rolling command car, this was an unmarked Dallas police car driven by Chief of Police Curry and occupied by Secret Service agents Sorrells and Lawson and by Dallas County Sheriff J.E. Decker. The occupants scanned the crowd and the buildings along the route. Their main function was to spot trouble in advance and to direct any necessary steps to meet the trouble. Following normal practice, the lead automobile stayed approximately four to five car lengths ahead of the president's limousine. Next came the presidential limousine itself. The president's automobile was a specially designed 1961 Lincoln convertible with two collapsible jump seats between the front and rear seats. You can see them in Commission Exhibit No. 346 on page 44. It was outfitted with a clear plastic bubble top, which was neither bulletproof nor bullet-resistant. Because the skies had cleared in Dallas, Lawson directed that the top not be used for the day's activities. He acted on instructions he had received earlier from Assistant Special Agent in Charge, Roy H. Kellerman, who was in Fort Worth with the President. Kellerman had discussed the matter with O'Donnell, whose instructions were, and I quote, if the weather is clear and it is not raining, have that bubble top off. Elevated approximately 15 inches above the back of the front seat was a metallic frame with four hand holds that riders in the car could grip while standing in the rear seat during parades. At the rear on each side of the automobile were small running boards, each designed to hold a Secret Service agent with a metallic handle for the rider to grasp. The President had frequently stated that he did not want agents to ride on these steps during a motorcade, except when necessary. He had repeated this wish only a few days before during his visit to Tampa, Florida. President Kennedy rode on the right-hand side of the rear seat with Mrs. Kennedy on his left. Governor Conley occupied the right jump seat, Mrs. Conley the left. Driving the presidential limousine was Special Agent William R. Greer of the Secret Service. On his right sat Kellerman. Kellerman's responsibilities included maintaining radio communications with the lead and follow-up cars, scanning the route and getting out and standing near the president when the cars stopped. Next in line after the presidential limousine were more motorcycles. Four motorcycles, two on each side, flanked the rear of the presidential car. They provided some cover for the president, but their main purpose was to keep back the crowd. On previous occasions, the President had requested that, to the extent possible, these flanking motorcycles keep back from the sides of his car. After those motorcycles came what was known as the Presidential Follow-Up Car. This vehicle, a 1955 Cadillac, eight-passenger convertible, was especially outfitted for the Secret Service, and it followed closely behind the President's automobile. It carried eight secret service agents two in the front seat two in the rear and two on each of the right and left running boards each agent carried a 38 caliber pistol and a shotgun and automatic rifle were also available presidential assistants david f powers and kenneth o'donnell sat in the right and left jump seats respectively the agents in this car under established procedure had instructions to watch the route For signs of trouble scanning not only the crowds but the windows and the roofs of buildings overpasses and crossings they were instructed to watch particularly for thrown objects and sudden actions in the crowd and any movements toward the presidential car the agents on the front of the running boards had directions to move immediately to positions just to the rear of the president and mrs kennedy When the president's car slowed to a walking pace or stopped or when the press of the crowd made it impossible for the escort motorcycles to stay in position on the car's rear flanks. The two agents on the rear of the running boards were to advance toward the front of the president's car whenever it stopped or slowed down sufficiently for them to do so. Behind the presidential follow-up car was the vice presidential car. The vice presidential automobile, a four-door Lincoln convertible obtained locally for use in the motorcade, proceeded approximately two to three car lengths behind the president's follow-up car. This distance was maintained so that spectators would normally turn their gaze from the president's automobile by the time the vice president came into view. Vice President Johnson sat on the right side of the rear seat, Mrs. Johnson in the center, and Senator Yarborough on the left. Rufus W. Youngblood, special agent in charge of the Vice President's detail, occupied the right-hand side of the front seat. And Herschel Jacks of the Texas State Highway Patrol was the driver. Behind the Vice Presidential car was the vice presidential follow-up car. It was driven by an officer of the Dallas Police Department. This vehicle was occupied by three Secret Service agents and Clifton C. Carter, assistant to the vice president. These agents performed for the vice president the same functions that the agents in the presidential follow-up car performed for the president. Behind all of that was the remainder of the motorcade. The remainder of the motorcade consisted of five cars for other dignitaries, including the mayor of Dallas and Texas congressmen, telephone and Western Union vehicles, an official party bus for White House staff members and others, and then two press buses. Admiral George G. Berkeley, physician to the president, was in a car following those, and I quote, containing the local and national representatives. In addition to all of that, there were police cars and motorcycles. A Dallas police car and several motorcycles at the rear kept the motorcade together and prevented unauthorized vehicles from joining the motorcade. Communications in the motorcade. A base station at a fixed location in Dallas operated a radio network, which linked together the lead car, the presidential car, the presidential follow-up car, the White House communications car, the Trademark, Love Field, and the presidential and vice presidential airplanes. The vice presidential car and vice presidential follow-up car used portable sets with a separate frequency for their own car-to-car communication. Now let's turn to the drive through Dallas. The motorcade left Love Field shortly after 11.50 a.m. and drove at speeds up to 25 to 30 miles an hour through thinly populated areas on the outskirts of Dallas. At the president's direction, his automobile stopped twice, the first time to permit him to respond to a sign asking him to shake hands. During this brief stop, agents in the front positions on the running boards of the presidential follow-up car came toward and stood beside the president's car looking out toward the crowd and special agent kellerman assumed his position next to the car on the other occasion the president halted the motorcade to speak to a catholic nun and a group of small children in the downtown area large crowds of spectators gave the president a tremendous reception the crowds were so dense That Special Agent Clinton J. Hill had to leave the left front running board of the President's follow-up car four times to ride on the rear of the President's limousine. Several times, Special Agent John D. Reddy came forward from the right front running board of the Presidential follow-up car to the right side of the President's car. Special Agent Glenn A. Bennett once left his place inside the follow-up car to help keep the crowd away from the President's car. When a teenage boy ran toward the rear of the president's car, Reddy left the running board to chase the boy back into the crowd. On several occasions, when the vice president's car was slowed down by the throng, Special Agent Youngblood stepped out to hold the crowd back. According to Plan, the president's motorcade proceeded west through downtown Dallas on Main Street to the intersection of Houston Street, which marks the beginning of Dealey Plaza. From Main Street, the motorcade turned right and went north on Houston Street, passing tall buildings on the right and headed toward the Texas School Book Depository Building. The spectators were still thickly congregated in front of the buildings, which lined the east side of Houston Street. But the crowd thinned abruptly along Elm Street, which curves in a southwesterly direction as it proceeds downgrade grade toward the Triple Underpass and the Stemmons Freeway. As the motorcade approached the intersection of Houston and Elm Streets, there was general gratification in the presidential party about the enthusiastic reception. Evaluating the political overtones, Kenneth O'Donnell was especially pleased because it convinced him that the average Dallas resident was like other American citizens in respecting and admiring the president. Mrs. Conley, elated by the reception, turned to President Kennedy and said, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you. The President replied, that is very obvious. Thank you for listening to episode 193 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.